This episode is brought to you by Harry's.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors. Get $5 off your first order when you use the promo code BEST. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Throwing Shade, Dan Savage, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Friends Project, Activism from Best of the Left, and Panty the Drag Queen. I'm not the only one who is sentimental for uh, times past. You know, I sometimes I go out, like I say, I went to a bar, and it reminded me of back in my heyday before I was uh, married with children, with a family, when I would go out and uh, spend all, all night in the clubs, as it were. And um, Even that sounds so yes, incongruent yes. with you. But I'm not the only one who, who gets sentimental for a bygone era. era. Here is Pat Robertson talking about how, how times have changed in terms of gay people. And gosh, what a, what a shame. I think you've got to remember from the Bible, you look carefully at the Bible, what would have happened in Jesus' time if two men decided they wanted to cohabit together, uh, they would have been stoned to death. So Jesus would not have baked them a wedding cake, nor would he have made them a bed to sleep in, because they wouldn't have been there. But uh, we don't have that in this country here, so that's the way it is. But ladies and gentlemen, I think we have to recognize uh, what uh, I said a few years ago, um, at that point, uh, homosexual marriage was condemned. Homosexuality itself was considered a, a, a pathology. And now those who were practicing that activity uh, have turned and become the oppressors of those who hold to deeply held religious points of view. It, the, the tables have turned, and I, I think uh, it's just the way it is. But why? <laughs> the, t- the tables, the tables have turned. We no longer, we, you see, Christians have become the oppressed because we no longer have the ability to stone the, the homosexual, and and therefore. Our our tendons and muscles in our shoulders have atrophied, and it 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 has now weakened our. We have Christians going around with 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 an inability to exercise their shoulders by throwing rocks at gay people, making it impossible for a Christian to do Christian things. Never mind, like pick up a fork and eat. It is now so much harder for a true Christian man to to take his arm and use it in service uh, by, you know, keeping his wife in line. And so, therefore, because of the, the God-faring Christians do not have the ability to provide corporal redirection to their to their wives you see things like women voting or uh women uh, getting jobs or um, um you know, having uh, sexual relations so ipso facto our inability to stone the homosexual has allowed women to have sex. 
I love the logic of that, though, that there was an amazing progression there. He goes, time was we could stone people to death. Now we're oppressed. How so? We can't do, we can't do that here in America. That's just the way it is. We used, to, uh, we used to be able to murder them. Now we cannot. No. <laughs> we are... We are oppressed because we no longer have the ability to oppress. And so uh, that, that that's that's what that's how we're oppressed is that we've had something ripped from us. Shreveport, Louisiana was considering repealing something known as the Sustained Non-Discrimination Ordinance, and it's supposed to protect people with all different types of backgrounds, and especially those in the LGBT community. Now, there was one councilman by the name of Ron Webb who wanted to repeal it, and uh, a woman, uh, a resident in the area, was not too happy about it. So a transgender woman by the name of Pamela Raintree uh, stood up during this meeting, and she made the following point. Leviticus 2013 states, if a man lies also with mankind as he lieth with a woman they shall surely put him to death I brought the first stone Mr. Webb in case that your Bible talk isn't just a smokescreen for personal prejudices damn that is so strong so strong oh I love that that's an early Turk of the Year candidate move <laughs> I mean to come and say no 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 I know I know but I, now the Bible says you should stone me go ahead pick it up pick it up son Oh. You know what he did? He withdrew the bill. I love it. I Damn, love it. man, that's Care an elbow from the sky. Just careful with no, that elbow. No, no, no. You're going to destroy that thing. <laughs> Jesus. No, no, no. You, if I can be half as strong as she is. Right. Okay. I love that, man. It, you know, if anything, she should have read more of the quotes. And by the way, the next pick up the stone and kill the guy who's eating the shrimp over there because you're not supposed to eat shellfish. But of course, hers was much more dramatic. I would have belabored it. <laughs> but, but bring the stone in. God, that was powerful. It is powerful. And, you know, she did something that was effective. It, it really resonated with people that were there. At the same time, of course, she deserves all the credit. But at the same time, I give him a tiny little bit of credit for deciding to withdraw mm -hmm. his vote for repeal. Um, because I feel like a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans would have been like, nah, whatever, I'm going to keep fighting it. Right? So, yeah, that is an ironic piece of credit that he was so embarrassed he had to yes. withdraw his own yes. But you're right, at least he changed after you know she read the Bible to him. Yeah, and, and, I know. And, and look, when you put the reason why it's so powerful is when you put the stone down. Now, you, look, you just said it. You're supposed to stone me to death. Can you, do you really have the, ironically, the stones for it? You don't, because you don't actually believe it. You're picking different things out of the Bible to reinforce your prejudices, mm -hmm. right? And so if you believe in the whole thing, you'd be living in a whole different life. But you know it's not literally true. Well, if it's not literally true, then why are you picking on me and not the people who are divorced or not the kid who yelled at his parents or the person who ate shellfish? You're wrong, right? 
And for him, you're right. It's at least he it, uh, admitted he was wrong by withdrawing the bill. But obviously, she gets 99 percent of the credit. Of course. And of course, she said at the end. <laughs> so much love, much love, Pamela Raintree. Well, researchers from Columbia University <laughs> found that people who are homophobic and with anti-gay attitudes live two and a half years less than people who are not homophobic it's like and being who a accept smoker. gay people. It's like being a smoker. Do you know that I read today that one cigarette a day it does nothing? Keeps the doctor away? Well, it doesn't really do anything. What like do you mean doesn't? There's no harm? It ends up one cigarette a day. Lies. One cigarette a day, you end up losing two days off your life. I don't buy it. I think that's a total lie by cigarette well, companies. How dare you accuse us of such things? Absolutely. Call Marlboro and go, did you absolutely fund I call study? Marlboro every day because I, I get, check my balance on my Marlboro miles. Oh, and they it, have bank accounts now? Yes. I have 300000 which means I'm almost in, in line to get a stuffed Puma. Yeah, I do camel cash, so I always do all camel, all camel, like, windbreakers, yeah. windbreaker pants. Joe Cool glasses. Joe Cool glasses. Joe Cool. Wait, is Joe Cool camel? Yeah. No, it's Snoopy. It's Joe Camel is different than Joe Cool. But isn't Joe Camel cool? Yes. So, point taken. You're right. Joe Camel's cooler than Joe Camel. Did that make sense? Mm hmm Okay. So, they attribute this increased mortality rate to higher... It's no surprise. Higher stress, having more anger, just mad that the gays are out there. Also probably mad because they're gay themselves. And A lot of times. According to the American Journal of Public Health... Harboring prejudice produces uh, these kinds of uh, conditions. Basically, heart disease. Yes. Wait, I have a question. Mm -hmm. So, but does does it work? Because you know how um, does what work? You know how I don't like anybody who's under five ten. Yes. So I'm prejudiced against them, and I get angry when I see someone short, and I go, "What are you doing?" Yeah. Where you try pants? to cut their feet off. Yeah. No, I try to add feet to them. Oh, right. To make them taller. That's what I meant. Yeah. But does it work with other people, or is it just homophobes? What? Does it, well, I oh, I see. Well, oh, I have the years. answer for you. Okay. So, uh, the researchers wrote that anti-gay prejudice. Did they write with like cursive and they like a did. quill pen. They did. Yeah, exactly. They. It was just Marie Curie. She was. Yeah. Just, she's. They, they just cloned her and she did all the research for this. Anti-gay prejudice was specifically associated with increased risk of cardiovascular-related related causes of death. Uh, this play, the gen, it was the General Social Survey, and they've been polling Americans about their social, excuse me, their sexual orientation and their attitude since 1988, and also used records. My favorite year. Well, you know, that was George the year Michael. Debbie Thomas got the bronze medal, oh. and Katarina Vitt got the gold for women's figure skating. Yeah. And the year Brian Boitano won. Cool. Also, acid wash jeans, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Corvettes. George H.W. Mm -hmm. All that year. Yeah. I have, I have a saying for the study. Hate hurts the heart. Oh, that's so pretty. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I'm you should, you're going to quilt that? Quilt it, yeah. sell it. Tattoo it. If, uh, TM, everybody. TMR right now. C on this. TMRC. What does Trademarked, that mean? Trademarked, registered, copyright. Oh. Claim it. You will not take it from me. For such a you nice will, saying. You're you being such pry, a dick about such a nice saying. You will pry the saying out of my cold, dead 
hands. Uh, I will make money off of You're Charlotte you Heston. Won't. So to measure homophobia, they looked at answers to questions like, should a man who admits that he's a homosexual be allowed to teach in a college university? No. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't asking you, but oh, I'm but glad see, you when I said up. that, it didn't make my heart go up. You know, my heart rate. You know what, though, it made mine go up. It did. Yeah, because I said no. Yeah, but because you asked the question, where did your heart? Because I feel like- after you said no, my heart skipped. Okay, a let's see what happens in the next one. Do you think that sexual relations between two adults of the same sex is always wrong, almost always wrong, wrong only sometimes, or not wrong at all? Almost always wrong. Okay. But oh, well, do, not always no, wrong. No, there's some exceptions. What are the exceptions? Well, if it's like a circus and they're getting paid. What kind of circus? Sex has... circus. Oh, okay. Yeah, like in Brazil. They do it in Brazil. Bunch of sex In people. the movie? No, I saw it on Real Sex on HBO in like 1995. They do, they have gay sex in, in the circus? Well, no, it's just sex. So just in a, in a setting that's abusing animals. And, yeah, no, no, no animals. Where people are free falling from trapezes. It's, you get, they have these cave theaters in Brazil and it's like a hollowed out cave. Kind of like Red Rocks, but inside, and it's people that pay they pay money, and they come in and they sit in a seat and they watch people have sex. Oh, so this is a gigantic lie. No, it was on Real Sex. Google. I'm not googling Real Sex. In fact, the last thing I want to do is Google, Google Real, real sex. sex. Brazil. No. Inside caves. Will do. Uh, okay, stress in turn is associated with less healthy behavior because they they said that these homo- highly homophobic people uh, that their interactions are very stressful among you know with gay people. Well, because they're trying to control people, they hate what they do. They and that being homophobic can lead to overeating, smoking, <laughs> and heavy drinking. Oh, so. So Isn't basically, cr- hating other people leads you yes. to hate yourself. And but this you- was done specifically. This wasn't even a hatred study. This was a micro study of just homophobia. But I think, yeah, you could probably but, paint a bigger point here and say that any kind of hatred of anybody is very stressful. Yeah, for but you. here's the difference. Homophobia, specifically, unlike racism, like, you, like if you hate black people or Asians you can't I can't make the argument of like oh you hate Asians because you're actually an Asian you know what I mean that's a different kind of hate but I think I can make the argument oh you hate gay people because you're afraid that you might be gay yeah and that's a whole different that's a I think that's an internal well it's disease it's an internal hate so yeah maybe the two are connected fuck these people at Columbia University Honestly, screw the people at Columbia University. Oh, just for being snooty? For being snooty and for pretending to know what we already know. Like, we know that... Oh, you're mad they did this study because you already know this? I already knew it. You knew that homophobes died died sooner? Yeah. What do you call, um... What's the... Hospice uh, care? uh, Andy Warhol. Mm. Dead. He wasn't a gay hater. Uh, Who else? Um, Tchaikovsky. Dead. Uh Uh-huh. Paul Lind. Dead. Oh, you're saying gay people died. No, no, no. They, they hated gay people. Paul um, Lynn hated gay people? Who else? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is Melissa Manchester dead? I she sang the theme song for My Escapades? Sure, I would know that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, the woman You know I'm sang, not a gay man, right? The woman who sang Gloria is dead. Laura Branigan? Sure. Dead. Okay. So... Yeah. What's your point? You're first of all, I don't I can't get on board with this cuz I don't know half the people you're mentioning. They're so niche. It's the most niche reference. People from the 80s who love the 80s don't even know these The references. only homophobe I know who's still alive uh who's lived a long life is Cicely Tyson and you. Oh yeah. I'm a noted homophobe. Yeah. Because I I go around with my t-shirts. Yeah. So I don't even think we really needed the study to 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 know that, oh, well, that this kind of thing. Oh, well, it's good you brought it up then. Thank no, you so much. No, no. I guess what I'm saying is like 
here's just another thing you can shove in your parents' face, in your brother's face, in your sister's face, and Don't be like, be- you're killing, guess what you're doing? You're not pushing me away, you're killing yourself. make a habit out of looking for advertisers for the show, but if they find me and they fit with my personality, then I'm happy to talk about them. And that is exactly what happened with Harry's.com. They sell shaving equipment, blades, handles, shaving cream. And because they found me, you can get $5 off your first purchase when you use the promo code BEST. Everything gets shipped right to your door, and the blades are about half the cost of name brand competitors. Changing the paradigm of shopping for razors and saving people a whole bunch of money is exactly what motivated the creation of Harry's.com, but what they didn't realize when they approached me to advertise for them is that I already use a company that ships razor blades to me directly at a fraction of the price of the name brands. So when I heard about Harry's, I just thought, oh, it's another company that's doing that same thing that I already like from that other company that I already like. So they were going to have to impress me with a lot more than just the easiness of how to order their products. And to my surprise, they actually did that. They sent me a free pack to try out, and I am really not exaggerating when I say that these are the best blades I've ever used. This is a true story. I shaved with one of these new blades for the first time one afternoon, and then went to bed that night, obviously, woke up the next morning, and my girlfriend Amanda asked me in the morning if I had gotten up early to shave again because she was confused as to how my face could still feel as smooth as it did after so much time had gone by since my shave. So I was already sold on the idea of getting my shaving supplies by mail. I was already used to paying half the price of the name brand razors, but it was the great design of the products and the superior quality of their blades that is actually making me ditch my old company to become a Harry's.com customer. So check them out. 15 bucks gets you a set that includes a handle, three blades, and shaving cream all shipped to your door. Go to harrys.com and use the promo code BEST to save an additional $5 off your first purchase. And that also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. Years ago, when I was a weird little kid, I would watch Firing Line with my dad. Firing Line was this program, a uh, talk show on PBS hosted by William F. Buckley Jr., who was this right-wing douchebag, right? Hosted this political chat show on PBS. And I would watch it when I was a really little kid. And I have distinct memories of watching this show and hearing respected media figures, political figures, business leaders defend segregation, defend bans on interracial marriage, um, advocate for basically flat out period end of discussion racist shit that you can no longer go on TV and talk up and defend and expect to be employed anywhere the next morning. Um, and I've talked about this a lot when I've gone to colleges and talked about where we are in LGBT civil rights in this country. And we're sort of pre that moment, right? You can still go on TV and say shitty, shitty anti-gay things, uh, advocate for just the most homophobic, transphobic bullshit and be a respected member of the community, elected to Congress, run for president the next day without anybody getting in your face about it. It is still a a position that you can take publicly without fear of committing career suicide, right? And I would say, and I have said, that I remember these racists going on TV and talking this shit up, talking up segregation, talking up bans on interracial marriage, defending it. And then we seem to reach some cultural tipping point on race where you couldn't say that shit on TV anymore. You could think that shit as hard as you wanted to, but that just wasn't something you said on TV. We reached a point of 
ca- we reached this point of cultural political consensus where these were outliers. This made you David Duke, right? If you're for bans on interracial marriage, if you're for segregation, you're David fucking Duke and you are outside the realm of civil discourse. You're exiled. And we haven't reached that point on LGBT civil rights yet. You can still go on TV and be Rick Santorum. Right? You can be Rick Santorum and head up some right-wing Christian movie studio. You can be Rick Santorum and win 11 state Republican primaries and position yourself again to run in 2016, which he is doing, because these are still considered just one side of the debate, right? The anti-gay side of the whether gay people are humans debate, right? Whether we are humans on this planet uh, and entitled to our full civil rights as humans on this planet. Which brings me to the firing of somebody named Ike, Brendan Ike. He was briefly the CEO of Mozilla. Uh, I'm not a very tech-savvy person, so I didn't know what the fuck Mozilla was, but Mozilla is this Internet company, and they create the Firefox web browser, and there's something open source about it. A lot of people sort of contribute time to Mozilla. Uh, and, and this Brendan Ike guy sounds like a very important guy in the tech world. He invented JavaScript, whatever the fuck that is. I have no idea. But it's apparently very important to the laptop sitting in front of me, also known as my porn delivery system. So whatever contribution he made to making accessing porn so quick and easy and effortless, we all owe him a debt of gratitude here at the Savage Lovecast, I guess. But he's appointed to be CEO of Mozilla, and then it came out that he had donated $1,000 to the Prop 8 campaign in 2008 in California, which was a vicious anti-gay campaign, right? And a successful one, demagogued against gay parents, gay families, suggested that gay people marrying uh, were some sort of existential threat to children, you know, in, invoking that really the blood libel against gay people that we are coming for your children, that we're coming in your children, that we're coming to recruit them and we're coming to fuck them. That undergirds, that suggestion undergirds a lot of anti-gay violence because gay people, just by existing, just by being out, we are a threat. We are attacking. We have attacked your children instead of we are some of your fucking children. And some of the fucking children you have right now are gay. Are going to be gay or lesbian or bi or trans when they grow up. So maybe you want to make the world a better place for queer people because your kid could be queer. Anyway, he gave a thousand dollars to that campaign. There's a lot of queer people who work at Mozilla. It's based in Silicon Valley. A lot of liberals and progressives. They have really good policies at Mozilla around prote workplace protections and anti-discrimination. And a lot of powerful people at Mozilla who are queer. And some of them had a problem with this. And some other people outside the company had a problem with this. The straight people at OKCupid. Okay We've had them on the show. We had one of the founders of OKCupid okay on the show. The straight people at OKCupid okay took a big stand against Mozilla's CEO. They had anybody coming to their website via Firefox redirected to a page encouraging them to dump Firefox not use Firefox in protest of the new CEO of Mozilla. And the heat built and built, and this was not the queer rights movement that was building this heat. I said not one word about this dude. Andrew Sullivan said not one word about this dude. John Erebus, really, nobody in like the like gay blogosphere was stumping for this dude to be fired. None of the gay rights organizations said boo, we're stumping for this dude to be fired. But internally at this company, there was a lot of turmoil and rancor 
about his appointment as CEO. And externally, again, the most prominent being OKCupid, which is not a gay rights organization and is not a company controlled by the gay mafia or me and my husband. And then, as Michelangelo Signorelli points out at Huffington Post, then in the wake of Brendan Eich running around Mozilla and assuring people that he wouldn't discriminate and that he backs all of Mozilla's anti-discrimination policies, it came out that Brendan Eich had also donated money to Pat Buchanan's 1992 run for president when Pat Buchanan was and is an unreconstructed, sorry, racist, anti-Semitic, anti-gay bigot. He gave money to him. He gave money to Ron Paul. And none of this was sitting very well with the folks at Mozilla primarily where this scandal was boiling. And he resigned or was fired or was asked to resign and then did resign. And this is now all of it has been laid at the feet of the gays. We did this. We persecuted this guy, this guy who was anti-gay marriage in 2008 at a time when a lot of people were. Look at the polls. A lot of people were anti-gay marriage. As Jim Burroway points out at Box Turtle Bulletin, which is a terrific queer rights blog, does great coverage of the situation in Uganda, situation in Nigeria, Russia. You should be reading Box Turtle Bulletin. Also does great stuff on the situation here in America. There were over a million people who signed the petition to put Prop 8 on the ballot. Should they be fired? There were 7 million people who voted for it in California and more than 100,000 people who donated money to the Prop 8 campaign. The handful of gay and lesbian, bi and trans people who were delighted when this guy got fired and did a little victory dance. We don't want all 100,000, all more than a million, all more than 7 million people who voted for Prop 8 fired. A lot of those people have come around. The President of the United States, Barack Obama, was against gay marriage when he ran for President in 2008 in patently offensive terms. He said that when a man marries a woman, God is in the mix. And that is why, in 2008, Barack Obama claimed to oppose gay marriage. How in fucking salting is that? Who's in the mix exactly when a dude marries a dude? Chef Boyardee? Satan? Who? Nobody asked Barack Obama that follow-up question. But Barack Obama has come around. When you look at how quickly the polls on marriage equality have shifted, these aren't brand-new people who've been born and raised to adulthood and are suddenly voting, these are people who've changed their minds. And we have to welcome those people who've changed their minds. Brendan Eich apparently isn't one of them. Despite his apology for having caused pain, despite his assurances given to his employees and coworkers at Mozilla that he backed all of their policies, the one thing he wouldn't do, he wouldn't say, was that he has changed his mind and regrets that donation. Okay. Well, as a queer person who is married, who would like to be married, who would like to see marriage equality come to all 50 states, that's unfortunate. Those bigots who can't go on TV anymore and talk about how they oppose segregation, oppose interracial marriage, that tipping point we arrived at on race, we haven't arrived there yet on marriage equality. We're still having this debate. And it didn't become illegal after we reached that tipping point on race to hold those views you did become unemployable. You could not be the CEO of Chrysler or Mozilla or Apple or Google or Starbucks or Kmart, if they still exist, I don't know, if you were pro-segregation, pro 
bans on interracial marriage and you advocated for that, donated money to patently racist organizations, they wouldn't employ you because because they you would make your you would render yourself unemployable. And the bigots out there, they know that. So they keep their mouths shut about it if they hold those views. But they, they're entitled to them, right? We do not, I do not want, as Queen Elizabeth I said, I do not want to make windows into men's souls. You have a right to think whatever that you want to think. But in public, we all have to work together and get together and get along. There are certain values that we as a culture ascribe to. And on race, we've reached cultural consensus. That does not mean we don't still have racists or racism, systemic racism, blah, we do. But... We've reached certain cultural consensus. We're not there yet on LGBT. And I don't think the firing of Brendan Ike is going to help get us there any faster. We didn't do this. Sean Hannity, who called me today asking me to come on his radio show, which I declined to do, because if you want me to be your punching bag, you'll have to pay me. We didn't do this. Mozilla did this. Okay, Cupid did this. The blowback from employees, board members did this. And I don't think this has been a win for us. And I think it is crazy that this is being laid at the feet of the gay mafia. Just not true. There was no gay hit put on Brendan Ike. There was a movement underway culturally shifting, bringing LGBT shit closer to that same tipping point that race arrived at 30 years ago. And Brendan Eich maybe is the first victim of that emerging cultural consensus. But not a helpful one, because of what this says to the average 30-ish percent of Americans who still oppose marriage equality, is that you could lose your job if you open your mouth. That's not going to help persuade them. It plays into the persecution complex, the martyr complex of Christians. And we'll end here. The ultimate irony in all of this is that the folks who are screaming the loudest about what was done to Brendan Eich, fired for being anti-gay, the intolerance of the left, these are the same people who support what the Boy Scouts did here in Seattle a couple of days ago. They fired a gay scout leader because he was gay. These are the same people who talk about freedom of association being kind of a bedrock conservative principle. And if the Boy Scouts don't want gays associating with them, they shouldn't have to have them. There was a case here also in Seattle, in Bellevue, where a gay teacher was fired by a Catholic school for marrying his partner. The school tried to cut a deal with him so he could stay. They put it on the table, divorce your husband and you can keep your job. And he declined to divorce his husband and was fired from his job, lost his job. And conservatives rushed to the defense of that school. They have a right. They have their values. They have a right to demand that their employees hew to those values, reflect those values. So it seems on the right, and of course the right opposes the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which would make it illegal to fire someone simply for being gay in the 36 states where it is currently still legal to fire someone for being gay. They oppose ENDA. So the regime the conservatives want, and the reason they're hammering away at Brendan Eich, is you can't be fired for being anti-gay. You can be fired for being gay. So please, if you're following the Brendan Eich situation or you're hearing about it, you're hearing the murmurings, please know that this is being exploited by the anti-gay right to their benefit to reinforce the ancient regime when it comes to queer people in this country, which is we are vulnerable at all times to discrimination, violence, unemployment, and bigots are not likewise vulnerable. 
But as we reach that tipping point on LGBT civil equality, as we reach that tipping point on racial equality, that's changing, and that's scaring people. And when you're a tiny and vulnerable minority, and we are, you don't want to be in the business of scaring people. We have to be in the business of persuading people and bringing them along and changing their minds. And this, whatever else you think, and there are people out there, Andrew Sullivan is writing a lot right now about how this is a terrible thing and shouldn't have happened. Michelangelo Signorelli, John Arabosis are making the case for why this had to happen and isn't a terrible thing. Wherever you fall in that debate, we have to recognize that this has been a setback, PR-wise, for LGBT civil equality. It has been five years since anti-gay activists from the United States made a trip to Uganda. Five years since we learned that America's far-right anti-gay bizarro world had turned into an export operation. Three American evangelical activists traveled to the nation of Uganda for a three-day anti-gay conference in that country in the year 2009. While they were there, they spoke to a group that reportedly included Ugandan legislators. The American anti-gay activists urged the Ugandans that they should have zero tolerance for homosexuality and for gay people. The Americans told them that gay people are dangerous, that there's no need to respect the rights of gay people because, frankly, no one has to be gay. Gay people can become straight people if they want to because there's a cure for homosexuality. It's gay people's choice whether or not they want to avail themselves of that cure. So if they don't, you, you really can blame them for being gay because they could be straight if they wanted to be straight. The Americans explained to the Ugandans that if you give gay people an inch, they'll take a mile. You have to show them zero tolerance. Gay people really are out to get you, they told the Ugandans. You have to stop them. Those American anti-gay activists presented themselves as experts on sexual orientation. They said they spoke on the basis of reason and the latest American science. And their American activism exported to Uganda worked. Legislators in that country, including some who reportedly attended the big anti-gay conference with these experts flown in from America, legislators, those Ugandan legislators, began pushing for new and extreme punishments for being gay in their country. The first version of their bill established death by hanging as the sentence for the new crime of homosexuality. The Americans who had exported their pseudoscience to Uganda, which resulted in that bill, they said they were shocked by the drastic nature of the resulting legislation, the Kill the Gays bill. Those American activists tried to distance themselves from what they had wrought, but the Ugandans we talked to about it said those American activists had in fact inspired the law. Uganda's Kill the Gays bill eventually died after a wave of international condemnation. That was 2009. But then last month, a new iteration of that bill came back. And Uganda's president, somewhat unexpectedly, signed into law the new version of the bill. The revised version doesn't include the sentence of death for being gay, but you can still get life imprisonment 
You can also get seven years in prison for attempting to commit homosexuality or for promoting homosexuality. And when he signed that bill into law, the Ugandan president brought up, unprompted, the same kind of bonkers for science nonsense that those American activists had exported to that country back in 2009. Somebody to be a homosexual is a combination of some genetic, but, but mainly uh, external factors, like, like, like uh, influence and so on and so forth. We don't want anybody to interfere in our internal affairs. Finished. Finished. The Ugandan president said he was done, he wouldn't reconsider his decision, and he signed it. American officials, including both Secretary of State John Kerry and his predecessor Hillary Clinton and President Obama himself, had all been outspoken on this issue, warning Uganda to not do it. The U.S. gives Uganda a ton of foreign aid, and after President Museveni signed the anti-gay law, President Obama said the U.S. would review that aid money and our whole relationship with Uganda. We don't yet know what that review is going to mean, but BuzzFeed has a scoop today about something else the U.S. government is apparently now doing to try to turn this thing around. Secretary of State John Kerry now says the U.S. has a new plan to send actual scientists to Uganda so they basically can explain the gay, to try to undo some of the nonsense quackery that was passed off to these folks as if it were cutting-edge American science. Speaking today at a forum hosted by BuzzFeed, Secretary Kerry said, I talked personally to President Museveni and he committed to meet with some of our experts so we could engage him in a dialogue as to why what he did could not be based on any kind of science or fact, which is what he was alleging. He welcomed that and said he was happy to receive them, the scientists, and he said we can engage in that kind of conversation. Maybe we can reach a point of reconsideration. So after American anti-gay evangelical activists exported their views to Uganda back in 2009, holding them out as the latest in American science on this issue of how God can make you straight, can the U.S. government undo that damage now by exporting actual science, actual scientists, to try to clean up the mess that those other Americans left behind? Our government is apparently about to embark on a rather fascinating experiment in real science and real diplomacy uh, in a faraway country that a number of Americans had a real hand in really, really screwing up. The issue of what the United States government can do to try to undo some of the damage that Americans did in Uganda has been a very open question. I don't know exactly who Secretary Kerry is planning on sending over there, who the scientists are going to be who go over there, and how they're going to be received in Uganda, but uh, this is a new one in the annals of diplomacy. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
1994, I became the director of a drop-in center called Safe Space in Times Square. And that was where I first met Ali. He'd be dressed up as a boy half the day and as a girl half the day. Uh, the boy was Ali, the girl was luscious. But Ali was this very effeminate guy who would be wearing like high heels and a wig and like a three-day growth of beard. You know, when he walked, his, his arms kind of bounced like they had little springs in them. I mean, you know, you couldn't look at him for half of a second and not know that that he was queer as a three-dollar bill. At that time in the 90s, there was only one shelter in New York City, and it was run by a Roman Catholic organization. Kids would be told that they were going to hell by the staff and beaten up by the other kids. And so most of the gay kids just wouldn't go there. Um, they didn't feel safe there. They felt safer on the streets, as, as violent and dangerous as the streets could be. When Times Square was cleaned up, suddenly, like, their economic survival was taken away from them. And so Ali and many of his friends who survived through prostitution uh, had to find other neighborhoods. And a lot of them went up to Harlem in the South Bronx, and there was just much less of an understanding of what it meant for a gay kid or a transgender kid to be on the streets hustling. There was so little support and there was so little safety for these kids and they were just so out there on their own um, in, in really horribly dangerous situations. Ali was murdered in front of a housing project on uh, West 135th Street in Harlem in the middle of the night. Somebody walked right up to him and, and put a gun to his temple and shot him. You know, something that I never will forget was the last time I saw Ali. I had worked late at the office and when I left I went to the subway station on 7th Avenue. Ali was just sitting there and I sat down next to him and you know I was telling him that I hoped he was okay. Like you know, It was like the first Thanksgiving in three or four years where I hadn't had my Thanksgiving dinner with Ali. So I, I was telling him you know that uh, I was sorry that he hadn't been there for Thanksgiving and I really hoped he'd be there on Christmas. It looked like the light had gone out of him that night. After he was murdered, um, for about two months, every time I get into a subway, I would start to cry. Ali's death shaped me as much as anything that's ever happened in my life. I, I was so hurt and upset and um, devastated by that experience and it really changed my life in a way. Before Ali died, I felt like it was enough for me to just do a good job, you know, run a good program. Uh, after Ali died, I felt like just such a failure. Like, you know, I felt like it wasn't at all enough to run a good drop-in center if these kids were getting killed on the streets. You know, these kids would die, and it was like nothing had ever happened. You know, there'd be nothing in the papers. They, they just sort of vanished. And it was unbearable for me to think of Ali vanishing in that way. So I wanted there to be something that would, would be bear his name. We started with six cots in this church basement. And the first day I had a waiting list of 20 kids for those six beds. And within a few weeks of opening, we had over 100 kids a night on our waiting list. There'd never been a program like this where, where gay kids could go and receive safe shelter. I, I really had to work to get the funding in place to, to build it. Now we're at a point where we have 58 beds in seven different residential sites scattered around the city. And we have two drop-in centers. We provide medical care, mental health treatment. But we have a bigger waiting list now than we've ever had. Like our waiting list recently has gone up to 150 a night. So as 
hard as we've worked to create support for these young people, the need for the service that we provide has only grown faster. It's disgraceful that, that any young person should have to be waiting out on the street for a bed. So, you know, while I'm thrilled that we've, you know, created the largest shelter and housing program for gay kids in the country, probably in the world, um, I'm still uh, very frustrated that we have a waiting list. I need to do a lot of work to put the resources together to create enough beds so that every gay youth in New York City has a bed to sleep in where they're safe. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Ali Forney Center. We have what can only be described as an epidemic of homelessness among LGBTQ youth in this country. According to Color Lines, though only 5-7% to of youth overall identify as LGBTQ, as many as 45% of homeless youth are queer identified. A report from the Center for American Progress last year explained the reasons for the disproportionate representation. Family rejection, harassment in schools, and the shortcomings of the juvenile justice and child welfare systems all affect LGBTQ youth at higher rates than straight cis children and teens. As they struggle to meet basic needs such as food and housing, many LGBTQ kids put off health care while at the same time seeking out sex work to survive. According to reporting from Think Progress, this has led to a spike in HIV AIDS rates. Brad Vanderbilt of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation explained that, quote, the push to attend to medical care has to be set aside because the search for housing is the primary concern, unquote. With health implications that affect the broader public, you'd think there would be more national concern and resources dedicated to assisting LGBTQ youth in finding beds and care. Unfortunately, Carl Ceciliano, the executive director of the Ali Forney Center for LGBT Homeless Youth, has horrifying numbers that say just the opposite. A conservative estimate is that there are 200,000 homeless LGBT youth and just 350 beds in 10 programs across the nation to meet that need. The Ali Forney Center was started in June 2002 as a response to the lack of safe shelter in New York City. They provide not only housing, drop-in service, STI testing and treatment, substance abuse counseling, and career assistance, but are, quote, dedicated to promoting awareness of the plight of homeless LGBTQ youth in the United States with the goal of generating responses on local and national levels from government funders, foundations, and the LGBTQ community. The center has events, fundraising drives, and volunteer opportunities for those in the New York area who want to get involved. Their website, aliforneycenter.org, has links to resources in states around the country if you or someone you know is in need of help and or to volunteer where you live. 
As we celebrate the wins on marriage equality and non-discrimination legislation, we must not forget those whose basic needs go unmet. Even with the amazing work the staff at Ali Forney have done, there is a waiting list of over 100 LGBTQ youth nightly who hope for a safe place to sleep. We can and must do more to make something as simple as walking down the street while gay or transgender safe for our kids. If there are not resources in your community, let your city council and state legislators know that you expect they will step in and provide help where it is most needed. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? Tonight, we are delighted to welcome to the stage Ireland's most fabulous drag queen and famous activist, Panty. My name is Panty, and um, for the benefit of the visually impaired or the incredibly naive, I am a drag queen. I am also a, well, I would, I guess, a performer of sorts, and um, an accidental and occasional gay rights activist. Um, as you may have already gathered, I am also painfully middle class. My father was a country vet. I went to a nice school and afterwards I went to that most middle class of institutions, an art college. And although this may surprise some of you, I have always found gainful employment in my chosen field, gender discombobulation. <laughs> so the kind of grinding abject poverty that we saw so powerfully on stage tonight is something that I can thankfully say I have no experience of. But I do know a little something about oppression, or at least oppression is something that I can relate to. Now, I am not, of course, for a minute going to compare my situation to Dublin workers in 1913, but I do know what it feels like to be put in your place. Have any of you ever been standing at a pedestrian crossing when a car goes by and in it are a bunch of lads and they lean out the window as they go by and shout fag and throw a milk carton at you. Now, it doesn't really hurt. I mean, after all, it's just a wet carton and in many ways they're right. I am a fag. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt, but it feels oppressive. And when it really does hurt is afterwards, because it's afterwards that then I wonder and worry and obsess over what was it about me? I mean, what did they see in me? What was it that gave me away? <laughs> and I hate myself for wondering that. It feels oppressive and the next time that I'm standing at a pedestrian crossing, I hate myself for it, but I check myself 
to see what is it about me that gives the gay away. And I check myself to make sure that I'm not doing it this time. Have any of you ever come home in the evening and turned on the television and there is a panel of people, you know, nice people, respectable people, smart people, the kind of people who probably make good neighborly neighbors, the kind of people who write for newspapers, and they're all sitting around and they are having a reasoned debate on the television, a reasoned debate about you about what kind of person you are, about whether or not you're capable of being a good parent, about whether you want to destroy marriage, about whether or not you're safe around children, about you know, whether or not God herself thinks you're an abomination, about whether in fact maybe you are intrinsically disordered. And even that nice TV presenter lady that you feel is like almost a friend because you see her being nice on TV all the time, even she thinks it's perfectly okay that they're all having this reasoned debate about you and about who you are and about what rights you deserve or don't deserve. And that feels oppressive. Have you ever been on a crowded train with one of your best gay friends and inside a tiny part of you is cringing because he is being so gay. <laughs> and you find yourself trying to compensate for his gayness by butching up a little, or <laughs> by trying to steer the conversation onto safer, straighter territory. And this is you who has spent the last 35 years of your life trying to be the best gay possible. And yet there is still this small part of you that is embarrassed by his gayness. And I hate myself for that. And that feels oppressive. And when I am standing at a pedestrian bloody life, I am checking myself. Have you ever gone into your favorite neighborhood cafe with the paper that you buy every day and you open it up and inside is a 500 word opinion written by a nice middle class woman, the kind of woman who probably gives to charity, the kind of woman who you would be totally happy to leave your children with. And she is arguing over 500 words so reasonably about whether or not you should be treated less than everybody else, about arguing that you should be given fewer rights than everybody else. And when you read that, and then the woman at the next table gets up and excuses herself to squeeze by you and smiles at you, and you smile back and nod and say, no problem, and inside you wonder to yourself, does she think that about me too. And that feels oppressive. And you go outside and you stand at the pedestrian crossing and you check yourself. And I hate myself for that. Have you ever turned on the computer and you see videos of people who are just like you in countries that are far away and countries that are not far away at all and they are being imprisoned and beaten and tortured and murdered and executed because they are just like you and that feels oppressive. Three weeks ago I was on the television and I said that I believe that people who actively campaign for gay people to be treated less or treated differently are, in my gay opinion, homophobic. Now, some people, people who actively campaign for gay people to be treated less, 
under the law took great exception to that characterization and they threatened legal action against me and RTE. Now RTE, in its wisdom, decided incredibly quickly to hand over a huge sum of money to make it all go away. I haven't been quite so lucky. And for the last three weeks, I have been lectured to by heterosexual people about what homophobia is and about who is allowed to identify it. Straight people have lined up ministers, senators, barristers, journalists, have lined up to tell me what homophobia is and to tell me what I am allowed to feel oppressed by. People who have never experienced homophobia in their lives, people who have never checked themselves at a pedestrian crossing, have told me that unless I am being thrown into prison or herded onto a cattle truck, then it is not homophobia. And that feels oppressive. And so now, Irish gay people, we find ourselves in this ludicrous situation where we are not only not allowed to say publicly what we feel oppressed by, we're not even allowed to think it because the very definition, our definition, has been disallowed by our betters. And for the last three weeks, I've been denounced from the floor of the Oireachtas to newspaper columns to the seething morass of internet commentary denounced for using hate speech because I dare to use the word homophobia and a jumped up queer like me should know that the word homophobia is no longer available to gay people which is a spectacular and neat Orwellian trick because now it turns out that gay people are not the victims of homophobia homophobes are the victims <laughs> of homophobia say that it's not true, because I don't hate you. I do, it is true, believe that almost all of you are probably homophobes, but I'm a homophobe. I mean, it would be incredible if we weren't. I mean, to grow up in a society that is overwhelmingly and stiflingly homophobic and to somehow escape unscathed would be miraculous. So, I don't hate you because you're homophobes. I actually admire you. I admire you because most of you are only a bit homophobic. And to be honest, considering the circumstances, that is pretty good going. But I do sometimes hate myself. I hate myself because I fucking check myself when standing at pedestrian crossings. And sometimes I hate you for doing that to me. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. I'm calling about the uh, the Power of Words episode. And uh, one of the things that uh, it reminded me of was a, when they talk about sex as being more than just reproduction, uh, is Christopher Ryan uh, made a statement. Christopher Ryan is a, a guy, he, him and his wife co-authored a book called Sex at Dawn. 
which discusses sexuality in uh, indigenous uh, hunter-gatherer societies and so forth, and uh, at, in, in prehistoric civilizations, and how it's evolved into the kind of modern norms and patriarchy and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, one of the things that he said about sex is that you basically, 98% of the time, it doesn't make a baby, or over 90, 98% of the time, but even without a condom, you're pretty much, you're, you're virtually guaranteed that every time you have sex, there's not going to be a baby. It's just one out of, two out of a hundred times that it actually creates a baby. So he said, essentially, it's a social act that has the side effect of occasionally creating new human life. And, and so the, the idea that, that, uh, that these guys put forth that it's only uh, for making babies is one of those concepts that he says is relatively new because back in the, you know, there's still cultures out there where they deliberately uh, avoid monogamy and so forth because they want, they want people, they want that social lubricant of people having sex with each other to, to build those oxytocin bonds and they don't, they don't think of it in those terms, but, but they deliberately want to, to obscure parentage so that people feel responsible for the group and for all the children because they don't know which ones are theirs and, and so on and so forth. The really interesting, uh, he has some really interesting ideas on the subject, but I just thought, yeah, the, 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 the idea that, the argument that, uh, that sex is purely procreational is very similar to the idea that, uh, that we owe society, uh, you know, some amount of productivity that was discussed, for instance, during the drug war episode. And just as I don't think we, we owe society X amount of productivity, you know, over and above what it takes to kind of pay our own way, which you could argue, I, I don't think we really owe society X amount of children either. And so the argument should be, can, can, can be pretty much shot down on, on purely libertarian grounds that, you know, society doesn't doesn't owe or society doesn't have the right to extract a certain number of children out of each of us any more than they have the you know the right to extract a certain number of inventions out of each of us thanks i enjoyed the show bye this is sonia from minnesota and i would like to give a different take on the whole trans issue the whole biological sex binary idea is in itself a myth. Intersex births are somewhere about one in 2,000 births. Intersex meaning, well, the crude term for it is uh, hermaphrodite, which isn't really accurate anymore because hermaphrodite only refers to those that are exactly both whereas there's all sorts of murky in-between stuff. So how can we say that that person's a real woman or that person's a real man when biologically, even though you can't see it, they might not be what they're looking like. They might, ha they might look like a woman, but they have XY chromosomes. That's how they were born. And finally, I'd like to conclude by uh, giving an apology to the person, you know, the, the straight cis man that was identifying himself as queer, and then he clarified his whole thing, which it wasn't politics. It was that Q 
he did behave in ways that don't really work in our definitions for somebody who is straight and cis. So he doesn't fit the definition. So I apologize for for what I said. That's all. Bye. Hey, Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, I'm calling to um, chime in on the the gender and label debate um, we've been having in the voicemail section. Um, that, that's been great. I've really enjoyed what a lot of people have said, and I can kind of agree with, with both sides where, you know, we have a couple of people who called in saying that they they consider themselves queer or non-cis, and, and they want to relate to the community that way. They want to be not normal. They want to identify with them. And then we have, you know, Legitimately, on the other side, primarily, um, you know, gay and lesbian people calling, saying, "Hey, that's our that, that's our label. You don't know what we've been through. You know, you sh- you shouldn't be claiming to be something that you're not." And then you have people calling in saying, "Hey, you know, who are you to put anybody in boxes, etc." And it got me all thinking because we all have individual feelings about this. But when I think about, you know, why am I a progressive? Why am I a liberal? Why do I have this worldview? And I have this worldview because I want everyone to have the same opportunities as everyone else, and I want everyone to be treated equally. And then I look at how I fit into that and how I can be of the most service, how I can be the most good, considering the, the, the you know cards I have been dealt. And you know, when I was a kid, I was a theater dork in high school. Uh, people called me gay. Uh, I used to think it was cute and funny for me to call myself a lesbian trapped in a man's body. You know, I I did all those things when I played around um, with with those different labels, and I found that the best way for me to be useful to the cause as a whole is for me to just own what I am, because I have this kind of royal flush of privilege. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered male, and if I feel a little bit queer, which I do, especially living in this Christian bastion of Colorado Springs that I live in, I feel a little queer most of the time. I'm the feminist in class, and most of the women are, are quiet. I'm the one sticking up for for the, the disadvantaged in all my classes, and people look at me funny, but I think that's what makes my label of being, you know, straight, white, cisgendered male more powerful. You know, I don't feel the need to, you know take away from the fact that those were the cards I was dealt. And because I am white, male, straight, cis, people listen to me. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Um, Actually, I'm saying it's kind of wrong that people just listen to me because of that. But because of that, I have a platform. The people, when they look at me, they, you know, listen to what I have to say. And so I think the best way for me to be a progressive and to be a liberal is to use that to help the people that are disadvantaged. And I don't help them by identifying and saying I am one of them. I help them by saying I am not gay. I am not transgendered. I am not a woman. And I am not a minority, ethnicity, or race. But that doesn't mean that I can't stand up for them and I can't empathize with them and I can't advocate on their behalf. And I think being an ally and standing up and being a openly straight cis male white guy and advocating for those disadvantaged groups, I think that more than me trying to find a way where I can say, oh yeah, I'm a theater dork and people call me gay, so therefore I'm queer. No. It's okay that I'm cis, white, and straight. Um, And I think that is actually an advantage as a progressive as I try to help people. 
so anyway, I just wanted to, to throw that out there. I think everybody's right. I just think if we sit back and we look at our situation and what the cards we were dealt, how can we add to the situation? The last thing we on the left need to do is try to divide ourselves by saying, you can't call yourself this, you can't call yourself that. Hey, if those guys want to call themselves lesbians, that's great. Just know if you do that, you're probably going to offend some people and you're probably going to offend lesbians, just so you know. And as so long as everyone's aware of the consequences that come with the labels that they decide to, to give themselves, then so be it. But if we're all working towards a common goal, which is trying to make sure that everyone has a, you know, the same shot as everyone else and everyone's equal in the eyes of everybody, I think owning our own labels goes a long, long way for that. But anyway, Jay, thanks for the show. That prison show, by the way, broke my heart. That was one of the best shows I think you've ever done. But uh, anyway, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebuzik for all her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And today, I just want to tell you about a documentary I saw a few days ago. It's called Stonewall Uprising. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I knew that Stonewall was a big thing. It was, it was something, it was an event that happened. It, it sort of signaled at the beginning of the gay rights movement, but I just wasn't sure what it was. I, I just, I didn't know the details. And so Stonewall Uprising, it was, you know, it was excellent. I, I saw it on uh, PBS. And if you can find it yourself, I, I highly recommend checking it out. The basic idea was that homosexuality was essentially illegal. And so gay bars were being raided by the police and gay people were just being taken to jail on a regular basis. And Stonewall was the first time that, you know, they really stood up for themselves and said, no, we're not going. And they fought back uh, for multiple nights in a row. So, and, and that it just sort of kick-started the movement with when people realized like, oh, other people are willing to stand up too. Let's do it. And so it was great to get uh, you know the details of that, but for me the most interesting thing was the the real news clips from the '60s talking about you know certainly not talking about the gay rights movement because that didn't exist yet, but talking about basically the gay problem. You know what do we do about these gay people and how, how do we stop them from being gay and you know, all, all those sorts of things. So lots of very sort of serious straight laced people basically asking like are these people even human? You know, they're just describing them as sort of objects rather than people. And for me, I think the the scope of the discussion was best exemplified by the guy who was sort of the stand-in for the gay rights movement at the time was this guy who basically was arguing that gay sex should be decriminalized, but he went out of his way to assure the viewers and the interviewer that, no, 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 of course we're not advocating that gays should be allowed to get married or have adoption rights or anything crazy like that because that would be, you know, extremist and we don't believe that that would be appropriate. And then, and when he was asked if he himself was gay, he talked about how he'd had his first gay experience as a teenager. The guy, he's like 40 years old and goes on to say, you know, but I gave it up uh, just a couple of years ago because it wasn't my cup of tea. So like that was the gay rights spokesman <laughs> of the day. And it reminded me about a, a conversation that was happening on this show a while, like a year ago, a year and a half ago, maybe about polyamory because Tom Hartman had had a discussion with a conservative on his show basically about 
marriage within a polyamorous relationship. And Tom said, no, no, no. Of course, all we're saying is marriage should be between two people and the gender of those people doesn't matter, but definitely the number of people should be two. And there's no argument about that. And at the time I thought that sounds like bullshit. Like if the argument for gay marriage is you know, consenting adults should be able to have the freedom to do whatever they want, then what is the argument for three consenting adults to be able to do whatever they want or more? And the only arguments I ever heard in response was, it'd be too complicated, the tax code would be out of whack, there'd be a lot of paperwork, and I just thought, yeah, none of that really makes sense when it comes to debating people's rights. You know, like, there's too much paperwork to do for you to have rights, so... We'll just stop right here. But as we heard today from Dan Savage, you're talking about interracial marriage or, you know, the old clips of people talking about gay marriage or the new clips about people talking about gay marriage. We can see the march of progress is pretty steady. And I basically see it as my job to look as far down the line as I can see and stake out that progressive ground ahead of time. Like, I'd, I'd rather be ahead of the wave than just on the wave or behind it, because if the wave is coming and you have to pick a place to be, then it might as well be out in front. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories and Stories and forget who it is we're fooled.